This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 111. I'm Jim Garrett. Today's topic, lessons from the front lines. Another reason to choose your 30B6 designees carefully. Hey everybody, I hope you're having a great week. Today we have an interesting issue to discuss. And as always, I offer practical tips for lawyers on both sides, meaning for litigators who must select, prepare, and defend designees under Rule 30b-6, and for lawyers who schedule and take these kinds of depositions. Today's episode spotlights a new decision that illustrates the problem that can arise when an organization chooses, as a 30b-6 designee, an employee who knows more about the facts than what they need to know in order to address the topics. In today's case, a company's CIO, the chief information officer, was asked questions in his 30B6 deposition about a topic that he wasn't designated to discuss, but because he was familiar with the situation, he answered questions from his own personal knowledge and then saw his testimony quoted at least twice by the judge in granting summary judgment against his company. Now, the company was clearly aware of this unfortunate admission and in its opposition papers to summary judgment, argued to the court that it shouldn't consider his testimony, saying that he wasn't chosen to talk about the issue in question. In fact, in its response, it says, look, the plaintiff companies here, the ones trying to collect this debt, rely solely on the testimony from the CIO, but he was not designated to testify about matters relating to this particular issue. Well, that argument was destined to go nowhere from the start. Why? Because the cases are clear that 30B6 designees can be asked questions that go beyond the scope of the topics for which they are designated in the notice. What happens when the questions go beyond the scope for a particular designee? Most courts say that answers that go beyond those designated topics simply become the answers of the deponent alone on an individual basis and do not bind the entity. But questions beyond the designated topics for a particular 30B6 witness can still be asked and the answers are still admissible testimony. You'll sometimes hear lawyers defending 30B6 depositions object that a particular question goes beyond the scope of the topic, but that's really inconsistent with the overwhelming law on point. All right, so as you know, our Lessons from the Front Lines episodes focus on brand new court rulings from around the country, whether state or federal, that deal specifically with deposition-related issues. I do want to stress that because these episodes involve brand new decisions, it's important to keep in mind that the ruling or decision we discuss in these kinds of episodes may be withdrawn, appealed, overturned, or modified in some other way in the future. In the case in question that we're talking about today, which I'll refer to as the MSP recovery case, the plaintiff companies were in the business of recovering money paid by Medicare for bills that a private insurance company should have paid for instead. To give you an example, suppose I have health insurance and I get treatment, but for whatever reason, my own insurance company doesn't or can't pay 
the bills from the doctors or hospitals. In some circumstances, Medicare might step in and pay those doctors and hospitals that treated me and then go after my health insurance company to get reimbursed. Now, Medicare doesn't usually pursue reimbursement itself. Rather, it hires these payment recovery outfits to do that for it. And there are quite a number of them. They often buy these reimbursement claims in bulk and then pursue or sue the insurance companies on whose behalf Medicare advanced the funds with the payment recovery outfits getting paid a portion of whatever they wind up collecting. And that's really what this case was about, the MSP recovery case. Two related Medicare payment recovery companies suing two insurance companies to get reimbursed for Medicare benefits that Medicare paid directly to providers on behalf of the two insurers. Long story short, the two insurance companies, the two companies that got sued, uh, raised the defense that the payment recovery outfits didn't have standing to come after them because there was no evidence that the companies had been assigned the right to collect on these accounts. Obviously, if the companies didn't own or have a right to collect the debts against the insurance companies, nothing else really matters. They lack standing. Footnote, and that isn't uncommon. If you've ever worked with any kind of organization that buys loans or accounts receivable, you'll know that some buy these accounts in bulk, uh, sometimes thousands or tens of thousands of accounts at a time. These are sometimes called portfolio sales, which involve selling a bulk amount of similar assets, such as outstanding accounts receivable, all together in a single transaction. The original holder of the account wants cash now, sells them for less than what is owed, and gets paid immediately. The buyer of the accounts might have paid 20 cents on the dollar for those accounts and will make money by trying to collect the full amount owed. Sometimes these transactions happen over and over as the portfolio of loans are sold and resold. But what happens sometimes though is that the underlying paperwork showing who's been properly sold or assigned what gets mixed up or lost. And so when a collection company reaches out to start collecting on some of these accounts, the individual customers may raise the defense that the entity trying to collect on the debt can't prove that they have the legal right to do so. You'll sometimes see this in mortgage foreclosure actions where mortgages have been sold and resold many times to different companies, but where the portfolios of loans didn't come with all the right paperwork, purchase and sale agreements or assignments, whatever it is, if the entity that's foreclosing on the mortgage can't prove that it owns or has been assigned the debt, it has no standing. And sometimes, especially in mortgage foreclosure cases, that's a very successful defense because of the fact that those loans are sold and resold so many times. And that's what the defendant insurers in the MSP recovery case said. That's today's case. They argued that the companies pursuing the Medicare payment recovery had not shown that they actually had the right to file the claim and recover the debt. And they pointed to the 30B6 testimony of the CIO who offered the off-topic testimony. That CIO testified when speaking as the voice of the company that at least one of the claims in the case had been assigned to a different payment recovery company, not to his employer's. And the court specifically pointed to that testimony in granting summary judgment in favor of the defendants. 
the court said, look, these defendants say you don't owe these claims and you can't collect on them. And your own CIO agreed with that. Now, in footnote five of the opinion, and we've got the full case site in the show notes, the court acknowledges that the plaintiff recovery companies said they didn't designate this guy, the CIO, to talk about assignments. The court says, well, even if his answer did exceed the scope of the Rule 30b-6 designation, that would not require disregarding his testimony. Rule 30b-6 does not limit what can be asked in a deposition. It only defines the organization's obligations as to the topics with respect to which they must designate a witness to address. The court said that answers that go beyond the scope of the 30b-6 topics are merely treated as the answers of the individual deponent rather than binding on the corporation, rather than as the deponent speaking as the voice of the entity. But those answers are still admissible testimony. So what does that mean? It means that the testimony counts like the testimony of any witness. And here, the CIO's off-the-cuff answer amounted to a critical admission against the interests of his company. The evidence that the plaintiffs had been assigned the debt for collection purposes appeared to be weak already. And the CIO's unequivocal answer seemed to seal the deal for the court. At least that's our take on it. So this is a case where a designee with personal knowledge of other facts, of knowledge relating to topics for which he was not chosen to testify, wound up being asked questions and wound up giving answers that really hurt the company. Moral of the story is we have to be careful in choosing designees. Otherwise, as happened here, the designees may wind up giving testimony we didn't expect, we didn't prepare them for, and that inflicts real harm. All right, so let's cover some practical pointers and then we'll wrap up. From the side of lawyers who defend organizations and must choose 30B6 designees, some pointers for you. First, pick carefully. It doesn't have to be the person with the most knowledge on the topics inside the organization. Cases are clear on that. It need only be a person who can testify with reasonable certainty about the topics in question. Point number two, think about what your potential designees know about the issues that goes beyond the scope of the topics for which you are designating them. If they in fact have firsthand knowledge about matters and can testify in detail about facts that go far beyond the topics they're being chosen for, you really have to give thought about whether to use them and run the risk that they're going to freewheel it in the deposition or whether to simply choose someone else who doesn't have the same information, who can't go off topic because they simply don't have the knowledge base to do so, and then prepare them specifically and solely for the topics in question. Practice point number three. If you're going to use fact witnesses to also fulfill the role of a 30B6 rep, then prepare them not only as a 30B6 witness, but also as an individual witness on the key issues. That's critical. Again, the courts overwhelmingly say that questions of a designee can indeed go beyond the designated topics. But when they do, that's the testimony of the individual and not of the organization. But even that testimony of the individual can bite you 
if the designee wasn't prepared for a barrage of questions outside the scope of their designated topics. Point number five, check out our episode 106, where we offered a creative approach for choosing designees. In that episode, we suggested you consider retaining a witness, an outside individual, not an employee, perhaps with expertise in the appropriate area, and offer them as the designee. Rule 30b-6 and its state equivalents does not require you to use a current employee or even someone who was ever employed with the organization, right? As I said in episode 106, the rule itself makes this clear. It says, quote, the named organization must designate one or more officers, directors, or managing agents, and here's the key language, or designate other persons who consent to testify on its behalf. That really leaves you wide open to choose whoever you feel will best serve the company's interests. It need not be a current or former employee. And the benefit of that, the key benefit, is that the witness will then know what they know. They may have also have some substantive expertise about the topic in question, but they will not be able to testify about anything beyond which you have prepared them. They don't come preloaded with additional testimony that you might not have expected, which is a frequent problem when current employees that have significant roles within the organization are chosen to be 30B6 witnesses. All right, so point number six, and continuing on this notion of what I might call a retained 30B6 designee, what might the companies here, the plaintiff recovery companies, have done if they wanted to guard against inadvertent admissions? Well, they might have hired someone who was an expert in Medicare claim assignments. That person might have been able to offer more accurate testimony about what actually happened here, as well as perhaps the custom and practice in assigning Medicare reimbursement claims. We don't know from the record in this case whether the CIO's testimony was factually accurate. It is what he said, but it certainly was at odds with his company's claims that it had the legal right to collect. A retained witness might have evaluated this issue more carefully. We just don't know. But it might have minimized the odds of an off-the-cuff off-topic answer that proved to be very damaging. Point number seven, if you designate multiple people to appear as designees, be mindful of the fact that each of them might be asked questions about topics assigned to the others. If they are, it just means they're testifying individually as to the topics for which they were not designated, but you still have to guard against that possibility and prepare them accordingly. Point number eight, and if one of your designees has kind of gone beyond the scope of the topics, possibly into testimony regarding things they don't actually have personal knowledge about, reserve the deponent's right to receive a review copy of the transcript and clarify that in the errata sheet or at the very latest in an affidavit or declaration in support of or in opposition to dispositive motions. Uh, the designee in the case we're talking about today, the CIO, did submit an affidavit at dispositive motion time, but that affidavit didn't appear to address or clarify or undo the admission made during his deposition that some other company, not his own, owned one of these claims. All right, if you're taking 
a designated representative deposition. Always be mindful, point number one, always be mindful that the topics are in a very real way just a starting point. It's okay to ask questions of each designee beyond the scope of the topics for which the witness has been designated. Point number two, if more than one person has been designated by an entity to testify on the topics, consider asking each of the designees questions about topics for which any other designee has been identified. You might get some outstanding admissions and contradictions by doing that. Point number three, you will often get pushback from lawyers defending 30B6 depositions that you are asking questions beyond the scope. And that pushback might be very aggressive. Many lawyers mistakenly believe that you are limited to asking questions within the confines of the topics for which the witness has been designated. Again, that view is contrary to the overwhelming body of law on this issue. So the pushback you get might be very aggressive because the lawyer may not have prepared the witness for anything beyond the strict contours of the identified topics, meaning the defending lawyer will fully appreciate that if you go beyond the scope of those topics, you are much more likely to get unrehearsed answers that could prove quite valuable. Keep in mind, too, that the rules do not permit a defending lawyer to instruct a deponent not to answer questions simply because they go beyond the scope of a 30B6 topic. At best, they can object, subject to which the witness must then answer the question. Finally, in order to take full advantage of designees who may know much more than what the topics cover, it's important to ferret out information about the role that each designee has or had within the organization. Find out at the outset what their position is or was, what other positions they held, how long they've been with the organization, and the general scope of their day-to-day -day duties and activities. All of that will inform you about the knowledge they likely have, not only on the topic, but far beyond that. Okay, that's it for today. Interesting stuff. For lawyers that defend organizations, a lot of thought has to go into selecting that designee and a lot of caution has to be exercised when choosing designees who could also easily be fact witnesses because of their broad base of existing knowledge about the claims or defenses. Those witnesses pose some real risk when they're put forth as a 30B6 designee. And for lawyers taking these depositions, the ability to go beyond the topics for each designee is a crucial one, and you should always take advantage of that when it's clear that the designee arrives at the deposition with much more knowledge than what they've been designated to talk about. As always, thank you so much for listening. Have a spectacular week, and we'll talk to you again soon.